Birthdays are the weirdest things that we do, and here's why. I just, this, is, this is my personal opinion. The reason a birthday is weird is a birthday is a time for you to get together and celebrate yourself with other people. In reality, it's celebrating a day where you did absolutely nothing. Um, it was actually something that was done for you. Um, I, a, couple of, a couple of months ago, I called my mother on my birthday, and I, I've made a habit of this where I call my mom and say, happy birthday, because in reality, I was very passive in the birth process, right? Yet we celebrate um, the individual that was born, and, and that's something that we do in our culture, but I, I would argue that in some ways, this has shaped how we celebrate the new birth. Um, the new birth, being born again, being born from above, as the scripture would lead us to understand, is not something where we come to and we celebrate the fact that we uh, have done something to provide spiritual life for us. That is not the case at all. And as we come to this passage this morning, we come to it on the heels of a previous passage, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, that say this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So before we go any further this morning, I'd like to point out a couple of things that we do as we read the scriptures that often hinder our understanding of certain passages. Now, uh, we, we live in a world, and we have for the entirety of our lives, where the Bible comes with chapters and verses, even subheadings. So for instance, the subheading that we'll be dealing with this morning is, You Must Be Born Again. But far too often we allow those subheadings to break apart what the scripture is saying. We allow it to break apart the thought block instead of allowing it to influence the next passage. You see, when John wrote the book of John, he did not do so to give you a chronological account of what took place in Jesus' life. Instead, he wanted to give a theological account. He wanted us to understand who Jesus was and also in that understanding of who he was, believe in his name and by believing in his name have eternal life. Now, what we're prone to do is break this passage from chapter 2, verse 25, and we break it completely apart and don't even consider it as we look into John chapter 3. The issue is this is vitally important for our understanding of John chapter 3. In John chapter 2, we have men seeking to believe in Jesus of their own will, of their own fleshly desires because they long to have his authority. They long to maybe share in what riches he may come into. But John chapter 3, we simply say, okay, there, that's where the thought ends. It's not at all. The thought continues. John is developing a theological thought. Basically, what he's saying is the human belief that you would ascribe to Jesus is not salvific. The, the belief that you must have in Christ that would grant you saving faith is something that is, as we'll read in this passage, born from above. It is not something that we do. And the reason we come to the terminology of being born again, Jesus did not use this for the sake of saying, hey, this seems like a great illustration. The issue is it is a great illustration. It is a day in which you came to life and it was nothing that you did at all. Instead, it was something that was, you had absolutely no influence over. Frankly, you didn't have even a choice in your birth. You were born and here you stand. And so as we come this morning to consider the new birth, it is important for us to understand our original birth. The original birth that we have as we're born into this world is a time where, yes, we are brought into this world. There is life and, and, and that life begins and there is a full life ahead of it with different things happening and occurring. But ultimately, the life that you have was not something that you did. It was something that was done for you. And so this morning, as we come to this passage, as we read through it, my hope is that as we walk out of here this morning, we will have two thoughts. First, that we will celebrate the fact that the salvation we had 
The, the salvation that we have is not something that we have done and therefore we can gladly say soli deo gloria in our salvation to the glory of God alone. And for those of you in here who perhaps do not know the Lord Jesus, the beauty of the new birth is I can even look at you in spite of the fact that it's completely done of the Father and I can tell you, you must be born again. And so my prayer for you is if you do not know Christ this morning, that you would see the beauty of the gospel, that you would repent and place your faith in him because he has given you eyes to see. So if you would, in the honor of the reading of God's word, would you please stand? John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 is where we will be. It says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus Excuse me. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus responds and says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Let's pray together. Father, we come to consider lofty things this morning. Heavy things, glorious things. And Lord, as we come this morning, I I come to you confessing to you weakness and frailty. Lord, and I am reminded again, as I always am, that we must boast all the more gladly in our weakness that Christ's power may rest upon us. And so, Father, as we come to convey the truths that you broke down for Nicodemus, Lord, may you apply them to our own hearts. May you solidify them, Lord, that we may understand that our salvation is born from above that we might rest very comfortably in it and celebrate it. It is in the precious name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, so we give you a sermon in a sentence, and, and I confess to you those sermon in a sentence are mostly me taking apart a passage and saying here's the major thought. No one gets to disagree with my sermon in a sentence this morning because it is literally, literally word for word, uh, chapter 3. So the sermon in a sentence this morning is unless you were born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Very simple, very concise. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. So the necessity that we have this morning is, and we really have this issue almost laid out for us, is that the longing of the heart is to see the kingdom of God, is to experience it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to break down the circumstance, we're going to break down Nicodemus, and then we're going to deal with the, with the thing that Jesus poses to Nicodemus as Jesus, as he traditionally does, answers Nicodemus's question and request without Nicodemus asking it. So let's look at this man named Nicodemus real quickly. Now Nicodemus is a really interesting guy. We don't only see him here, but we actually see him later on. And from seeing him later on, we can conclude that some amazing things had happened in Nicodemus's life. But there's a couple things that I think are important for us to note. First of all, if you look at verse 1, you'll notice that there was a man, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So consider who we have here. 
Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and, and, and let me kind of break down what a Pharisee is. A Pharisee is one who spent their entire life studying the law, interpreting the law, and had an aim to, to have a righteousness from the law. That was their bread and butter. That was everything that they did with their life. And just to give you a little bit of background on this, to be considered a Pharisee, you would have had to go through the basic Jewish training, which would have very likely meant that by the time you graduated the base level, you had the complete Torah memorized, that you had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy committed to perfect memory. Now, we laugh at the idea of memorizing one verse. Consider this. I mean, he would have a working knowledge, intricate knowledge of all five of these books of the Bible. For you to reach the, the status of Pharisee, you would have to go past that and at bare minimum have the Psalms memorized. That you would have a deep working knowledge of the Old Testament. That you would know it intricately. And to really go past that, you, can, you would assume that if he had devoted his entire life to the study of the scriptures, he would have had more than the first five books and the Psalms memorized. He would know absolutely the entirety of the Old Testament. It would be as though it was written on his heart. Now, the reason this is so important for us to understand is because to, to consider who he's talking to here. To consider the righteousness of just this man. Remember, his job was to study the righteous requirements of the law and also interpret them and aim to fulfill them. That if anyone looked at Nicodemus, they would consider that Nicodemus was far more righteous than them. And we have these people in our life, I think, there are people we compare ourselves to. And that's ultimately what happened in the Jewish culture. You would look at the Pharisee and you would contrast your life with theirs and you would always find yourself wanting. Their righteousness was far superior than yours. And it's important for us to note this because Nicodemus is even encountered with the same problem that we are. But not only was he a Pharisee, we also see that he is a ruler of the Jews. Notice in verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, he had a unique authority. He was very likely a member of what we call the Sanhedrin. It was essentially a council of 70 elite Pharisees who had a deep understanding of, of the law that would, would be somehow exalted over even these normal Pharisees. It'd be very much like the Supreme Court to a normal judge. They would look to them and they would say, essentially what the Supreme Court says will go in my court as well. And so the Pharisees would look to the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. He had great authority, great power. I mean, you can imagine that any Jewish boy you can think perhaps would look to Nicodemus and say, that's what I long to be. I long to be a Pharisee, to know the law well. I long to have a righteousness of my own. I long to perhaps have some unique authority over the Jewish people that I might be a member of the Sanhedrin. And so when you consider Nicodemus in this passage, it's important for us to note who he actually was to help us consider who we actually are. Never would I make an attempt to place my own self-made righteousness in front of Nicodemus's. He would crush me. If anyone had a right, it would be almost like comparing yourself to Paul. Nicodemus had an, an incredible resume for his own righteousness. If anyone by his own righteousness would be allowed to enter into the kingdom of God, it must be Nicodemus. And not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, he was also elected to be the representative of the Sanhedrin. Notice this in verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. I read over this so many times in the past. The Sanhedrin had taken a unique interest in Jesus. Consider where we are in the story. Jesus has recently turned water into wine. Perhaps that's starting to get out. Not only has he turned water into wine, he exercised his authority in the temple to go in to flip over money, uh, money changers' tables to remove cattle and pigeons and all of these things from the temple because he is zealous for the things of God and he will remove anything that would corrupt them. 
Not only that, but we also know that he was doing other signs and wonders during this time. You can imagine that the Sanhedrin, these elite of Judaism, would begin to consider, who is this man? They would have to know something about him. And you can even see that they have a recognition of him. If you continue in verse 2, it says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. They recognize that Jesus has a unique authority. They recognize that God is with him, that he is sent of God. And in light of that, they say, we're going to send Nicodemus. We're going to send one that has been elected out of the Sanhedrin to go and have a conversation with Jesus. Now, the reason this is important, because it once again shows the status of Nicodemus. He is not some lackey inside of there. They sent him on the highest of errands. Go deal with this man named Jesus. Begin talk with him. Figure out what it is that he is teaching. We see his works. We see his wonders. But let's figure out exactly what he is teaching. Now, what's so interesting about this is Nicodemus has a question deep within his own soul. Not the one that Sanhedrin sent him to ask. But one that as he is looking at the life of Jesus, he begins to ponder himself. You see, just as those little Jewish boys would look up to the Sanhedrin, to the Pharisees, and say, I long for a righteousness like theirs. Nicodemus has just, been, just encountered one who had a righteousness superior to his own. He believed that keeping the righteous requirements of the law would be what allowed him entry into the kingdom of God. If he was going to enter in, if he was going to enjoy the, the heavens that he has longed for all his days, he believed that it was based upon his own righteous deeds. And all of a sudden he sees this man named Jesus and he has an even greater righteousness than his own. Can you imagine how that would cause him to quake? Because up until this point, Nicodemus has the greatest righteousness in all the land. He is an incredible man, an incredible Jewish man, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, even elected out of the Sanhedrin to go and discuss these things with Jesus. They must have recognized his superiority and his understanding of the Old Testament. They must have recognized something unique in him. But then he meets this man named Jesus and he sees what righteousness he has. And all of a sudden, there would be great fear over him. Is my righteousness sufficient? Because it doesn't even meet this man from Nazareth whose name is Jesus. And so he approaches Jesus, and Jesus begins to really combat exactly what's going on in Nicodemus' own soul. He has this question, can I actually see the kingdom of God based upon my own righteousness? And Jesus answers this question without it even being asked, and he says this in verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What I'd like to do this morning is deconstruct this passage just a little bit. I'd like to start at the top and end at the bottom, so to say. The first thing that we recognize here is the kingdom of God. This was the object of of joy. This was the object of hope for every Jew. They looked forward to experiencing and being a part of the kingdom of God. They wanted to experience that, friends, in the exact same way today that if you talk to any individual, most individuals who believe in some type of spiritual realm, unless they be an atheist, would argue that they long to experience heaven. They long to experience the beautiful things that the God of creation would offer them, and they believe that they can get entry by any means possible. Jesus denies this wholeheartedly. But so the kingdom of God is that heaven for which we long for, that eternal kingdom that we long to be a part of. And friends, if you be a saint, then this is something that you have indeed inherited. But he makes this statement, and it's an interesting one, you cannot see. I love this. Because he could simply say you cannot enter, and he actually does in just a moment. But he's making the point that you can't even see that which you long to attain. You have no real perception of it as is. You see, as as Nicodemus would work for his own righteousness, the kingdom that he was working for was not a heavenly kingdom, but it was a kingdom of his own making. As men work for their own glory, as they work for their own kingdom, the only kingdom that they are setting up and longing for is their own. My friends, you can see this in the way people speak of heaven. 
I consider, and I, multiple times I'll be asked the question, what is heaven like? And they begin to spout off things that would be their personal heaven. Is it, is it a wonderful country with uh, a nice back porch that I can sit on and enjoy the creation of, uh, of heaven? No. Creation, heaven is, is, is all about enjoying the presence of God forevermore. And it is not unique to each person. There is only one means of perfection. It is enjoying eternally the Father, Son, and the Spirit. The kingdom of God is just that. And friends, apart from God doing something in us, we cannot even perceive it. We cannot even imagine or hope or long for that thing that is so far more glorious than we can even imagine or conceive. So Jesus looks at him and he says, you've been working for something that you've never even seen. You have no idea what it actually is. And then he goes on to say, you must be born again. So we want to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is longing for that. Jesus looks at him and says, you cannot even see it. You cannot perceive it. And he says, you must be born again. Be born again. Now, this is a really interesting thing. And before we break down how we can be born again, what I'd like to do is ask the question, why can't we see the kingdom of God? Why can't we see it? Why can't we experience it? Why can't we enter it? And it's a very important question for us to ask because if we don't understand this, we will never understand the necessity of actually being born again. Because once again, I'm convinced that we think far too highly of ourselves. Nicodemus certainly did. I certainly do. Isn't it easy to think highly of ourselves? Lord, why would you not let me in? I'm so good. Do I not deserve entry? I, I work hard. I do the right thing. I seem moral in my day. Friends, that is not what is necessary for enter heaven because we are absolutely contrary as a whole to the things that heaven offers. I'd like to point out to you, first of all, we are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2.1. Friends, the kingdom of God is not for dead people. The kingdom of God is for those who are alive. And Ephesians 2, 1 says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So the reason we can't see the kingdom of God is we are actually spiritually dead. Secondly, we don't even love the things that the kingdom of God offers. Notice John chapter 3, verse 19, which we'll deal with in a couple of weeks. Men loved the darkness rather than the light. In verse 19, it says this, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We love the darkness. Our affections have to change before we'll actually even begin to perceive and enjoy the things that the kingdom offers. Thirdly, we are enslaved to sin, friends, man. Perhaps no greater thing has escaped the church than the understanding that you are bound to sin. It is not something that you do. It has you captive. It is, it is actually your slave driver. It has you captive. We are enslaved to sin, and unless someone would come and redeem us and set us free from that slavery, then we will be bound there forever. Martin Luther's greatest work is called The Bondage of the Will, and it is basically the, this argument that though we have a longing, or though men may seem to, to seek after the things of God, ultimately their, their will is bound. There is not an actual freedom of the will. The will must be set free for us to make the decision to follow Christ. And I want to read this verse to you in Romans chapter 6, verse 20. It says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. This is very important in the language. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Friends, you know what it means to be free from something? It means that there is no part of it in you. It is not something that you have. It's the same way that for a long period of time I was gluten-free. Praise the Lord, I'm not any longer. But ultimately it meant that it was not there. It was not there. 
In the exact same way, this passage is making the point that when you were slaves to sin and each and every individual on their actual birthday are born into sin, they are enslaved to it. And unless something happens, you will be free in regard to righteousness all your days. There will be no means of rewarding you because righteousness is actually the requirement for reward. And so what you find here is we were slaves of sin. You were free in regard to righteousness. The passage continues, but what fruit were you, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the thing of which you are now ashamed, those sinful things you are now ashamed of. For the end of those things is death, but now that you have been set free from sin, so the beauty is that we find in this passage there is freedom from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so very clearly you see the wages of sin, that which you were enslaved to, its end is only death. The kingdom of God is for the living. The kingdom of God is for the living. Lastly, our minds are set on the things of the flesh, Romans 8 would argue. And Romans 8 makes it abundantly clear that the mind that is set on the flesh does not please God. And it even goes to the extent to say it cannot. It is an impossibility for the natural man, the one who was born of water, to enter into this world and aim to please God and actually be able to do so. You are free in regard to righteousness. You are spiritually dead. You love the darkness rather than the light. Your mind is set on the flesh and you cannot please God. What a terrible state to be in. And yet it is the state of every natural soul. The reason we cannot see the kingdom of God is because everything in us is contrary to it. Everything. Far be it from that, friends. Should you even be able to see it apart from the Lord giving you new affections, you would not actually want it. It is everything contrary to you. We love and are bound to sin, and unless the Holy Spirit does a work in our lives, we will be stuck in that state. So we have to ask the question then, to continue to dissect verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How then, what is the new birth? What is this? First of all, I would like to point out that it cannot be produced by the flesh. Notice this in verse 6. Man, I mean, I would love to have seen Nicodemus' face as this, as this statement is made to him. Notice this in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus just shattered Nicodemus' worldview. Absolutely everything he's believed all his days is that what I do, what I work, what I labor for will produce something different than what I'm actually working in. Friends, flesh always gives birth to flesh. Now let me break this down for you because we do this. I mean, I, we look at Nicodemus, but I, I mean, I'm telling you, there, there, are very, there are many things that the Jewish culture this day had in common with the Southern church today. There are things that we think that we are entitled to simply by birth, whether you be born into the Baptist church or whether you be born into whatever church, whether you be born the son or daughter of a deacon or your daddy or granddaddy is a pastor. It is not a means by which you might inherit or work out your salvation. It is not something that the flesh is able to do. It does not matter how hard you labor. You will work your fingers to the bones. And friends, I would, I would argue, and very likely many of you attempted this. Certainly I did. For years and years of my life, I was convinced that should I act appropriately, God would begin to like me, that perhaps he would give birth to something spiritual in me. But the, the reality of it is, the flesh is only capable of giving birth to flesh. And this is actually in response to Nicodemus's question in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This is a foolish question, but in reality, it is, a, it, it is just as foolish as you attempting to gain your own righteousness. Your flesh will always 
always give birth to flesh. The idea of it giving birth to something completely contrary to it is absolute folly. And so what you have here is Nicodemus asking this question and Jesus looking at him and saying, as you've attempted all your days to work out the righteous requirements of the law, you know what you've given birth to? Flesh. All of your fleshly labor has produced flesh. That's all that we have here. And is flesh enough to enter into the kingdom of God? No. And so it cannot be produced by the flesh. And my friends, just as a brief aside and an urge, a plea for you, if you are working for your salvation, first of all, I would, I would urge you, would you please see the fruit of your labors? Have you ever seen a dead tree bear fruit? It is just as foolish as you going to a stump and looking for your daily meal. That is ultimately what we do when we aim to work out, when we aim to work for our salvation. It is an impossibility. It is foolishness. And I urge you, would you please cease and desist. Do not do this. It is, I would much rather you live in, in absolute rebellion against God than for you to labor all your days for your salvation that you might stand before him on judgment day having been introduced to the beauties of the gospel, rejecting it your entire days to say my righteousness is better than anything that Christ could provide for me. Because that's ultimately what we do when we stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, I've cast out demons in your name. I've done all these things, all these things I've produced in my life. He's going to look at you and say, away from me, you evil do. I never knew you. You were never born again. You never longed for the spiritual things that, that I would provide for you. Instead, you worked for your own kingdom. It cannot be produced by the flesh, but the beauty is it is indeed birthed by the Spirit. Notice again in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And I do want to make the point here that in verse 6, the first spirit that's made reference to there is the Holy Spirit of God. This, uh, at the time of silent meditation, I read Ezekiel chapter 37. Recently, actually, um, our own Connor preached on this uh, at Longview Point. But this passage is an incredible one. It's the idea that as we look out over this valley of dry bones, that there is absolutely no life there. It even goes to the extent to make sure that you understand the bones are very dry. There is nothing left of any real life. There's no meat left on it. There's no DNA present, essentially, is what we're looking at here. That there is nothing that those bones can contribute. There's no material there for God to multiply. Instead, if there be any life there, God must do it all. He must actually give life to it in full. Not only must he give life to it in full, but he must also breathe that breath of life into them. And so the beauty of what we find in Ezekiel chapter 37 is it is a grand illustration of the breath of God granting life. You see, Nicodemus here is asking this question, how must I be born again? And Jesus meets his question with this incredible answer. He says, all your labors are null and void, but should the Spirit of God give you life, then life you will have. It is a astounding thing. So the next thing that we see about it is it actually gives spiritual life. And if you'll notice, all of these things are contrary to what we once were. Ephesians 2.1 says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But all of a sudden what you have here is true and better spiritual life. You have actual life. That which is you were born dead on arrival, dead in your sin, and all of a sudden you are alive. You are a new creature. You have been born from above. The Holy Spirit has come in and done a great work that we might know and actually love and grow in affection for the things of God. That which we once could never do because we were in bondage to sin. It gives us new affections. Perhaps the greatest indicator of saving faith, of being born again, is the affections of the heart. Consider for a moment your own affections. 
What are they? Are your affections enticed for the things of this world? Do you sit down and read your Bible for the sake of a little earthly labor? Or do you read it because you have a strong affection for the master who wrote it? Affections are a grand indicator of being born again. Friends, the affections of the natural man do not long for the things of God, but the affections of the one who has been born again long for nothing more than to see their master. And so the new birth gives us new affections. Lastly, it releases us from sin's bondage. No longer are we enslaved to it. We have been set free. So and we look back to that passage in Romans chapter 6, that thing that you were once free in regard to, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, as Paul makes a play on the words, he says you are now free from sin. No longer does it have a snare on you. You are actually able, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is the beauty of faithful labor, which is one of our core values. I will, I, nothing burdens my soul than to see one work for their salvation, and nothing gives my soul greater delight than to see men work from their salvation. Because if we have Christ, if we've been born again, then that new life in us will produce works. It is an impossibility for the regenerate man who has an affection for the king of God who has a love for their master not to labor for him. The new affections of the heart give us a deep longing to serve him and now because of the new birth we are actually able to do so. We have been born again. It releases us from sin's bondage. And I would like to point out this passage in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is the passage that precedes uh, the valley of the dry bones. And it says this in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. This is a great indication of what actually took place there. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Listen to this. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the new birth. This is everything that Jesus is making reference to. And I would like to point out this to you in verse 9. Nicodemus asked this question, how can these things be? And in verse 10, Jesus answers him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? The new birth is not something that Jesus is essentially bringing onto the scene right now. It's been very clearly taught throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, giving a new spirit, changing a man, that he is a completely different creature. There's something fundamentally different about him. You see, the new birth is absolutely necessary for us to see the kingdom of God at all. Far more than that, it allows us to actually gain entry into it. The new birth is what allows us to actually have saving faith. Before the new birth, it is an impossibility for us to keep the laws and statutes of God. Before the new birth, it is impossible for us to even have an affection to do so. But once the new birth comes, conversion can actually take place. Now, the important thing that I would note here that I think is vital... The new birth precedes, meaning it goes before faith and repentance. Faith and repentance is what we call conversion. It is essentially the same coin, but two different sides. They happen simultaneously. But nonetheless, how can the man that we've made reference to, the man that is, that it, that is, that is of the flesh, the man is dead in his trespasses and sins, the one who is enslaved to sin, how can he then produce in himself faith and repentance? Instead, what he must have happen is the Holy Spirit of God doing a work in his life to grant him the affections and the longing to do those things. And the reason I bring this up, and the reason this is so important, is because had it be the other way around, if it is conversion and then saving faith, then we have to disregard an astounding amount of scripture that speaks to exactly who we are apart from Christ. Friends, we know what is in man. 
Sin and rebellion is in man ever since Genesis chapter 3. It has cursed us. It has bound us. We are locked into it, and we need someone to rescue us from it. The new birth accomplishes that, and it accomplishes it in full. It is not a partial regeneration. It is a complete regeneration. It gives you life, life that you never had, that you might actually repent and believe in Christ, that you might look at him and say, you are my greatest joy and affection. This is so vital in our understanding of salvation because should we believe that faith and repentance precede the new birth, then God looks down on us and awaits for us to give him permission to give us life. And friends, at that point, we cannot say soli deo gloria. We cannot look to him and say, to the glory of God alone. For we entice him to come to us and grant us life. Instead, he gives us life. He gives us a new birth. And by that new birth, our affections change. We look to him and say, where we once desired sin, we were once free in regard to righteousness. Now I'm free in regard to sin and I love my master. Now, I will also confess to you that the new birth is a mystery. It is a mystery. Notice verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So you can imagine Nicodemus in this circumstance. His whole worldview has just been shattered. And he's looking at Jesus. I mean, I, I would pay so much money just to see this look on Nicodemus's face as everything in his whole world has just been broken apart and he's been given really bad news but also excellent news that you can be born again and you actually can gain entrance into the kingdom of God. Not in a way that's based on your labor but instead that is, birthed, uh, that is based on the spirit of God working in your life. It says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then it says this, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit first and foremost the new birth it is a work that is done in secret it is a work that is done in secret it is something that God does in the human heart where he removes a heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh perhaps it can be illustrated this way and Lord willing you have a story like this that perhaps there was one individual that you would bring the gospel to not once, not twice, but multiple times you would go and you would share the good news of Christ to them, you would plea with them come to Jesus and there was something different about this next time they received the gospel in a way that they had not before. That all of a sudden it is like they had their eyes open. They're actually able to see. I will never forget sitting down with a young man for about two hours walking him through the gospel. And it was as though I was speaking to a wall. He could not understand. He could not grasp the gospel. And yet by the time that it was over, he had a, this moment where it, one second he was ignorant, could not understand the gospel. And, and it, is, it is as though in a, in a split second, all of a sudden his eyes were open and he was able to fully see and perceive the things of God. And I watched this man praise the Lord Jesus for his justice, that he could rest very comfortably in the fact that since Jesus had, had, had paid his sins in full, he no longer had to fret because he actually had been justified. Friends, that's nothing, that's not argumentation. That's not me presenting a strong logical argument. I made the same argument 167 times to this kid and all of a sudden now he has life. That's the secret work of the Spirit giving life to this man. In the exact same way, when we go, we should trust its power and authority that we should go with the gospel each and every time that we have the opportunity to bring that good news to them because the Holy Spirit is able to make the deadest of men live. He's able to cause a new birth. Secondly, its evidences are clear. 
Notice in verse 8 again, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Its evidences are clear. Friends, the second thing I'd like to do just to make this clear to you is not make you question whether you were born again, friends. The evidences of the new birth are clear. Repentance and faith are an evidence of the new birth. If you have repented of your sin, if you placed your faith in Christ, if he is the supreme object of your affection, then friends, you rest very comfortably. You have been born again. If you see the working of the Spirit in your life, I like to look at Romans chapter 8 for this. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. The basic understanding of this is, should you be in Christ, he is working in your life. He is sanctifying you. And friends, he does not sanctify those whom he is not justified. If you have been born again, if you see the Spirit working in your life, its evidences are clear, rest very comfortably that you have been born again. But I would also say this, if the evidences are not there, if the evidence of new life, if there is no repentance and faith, if there is no sanctification in your life, then you should tremble, genuinely tremble before that. There's nothing more tragic than to look at one who's convinced of his salvation all the while he is a fruitless tree, and fruitless trees are dead. Its evidences are clear. Lastly, it has a mode of operation. Now, I'm pulling this from various other places, but I think it's important for us to understand that the Holy Spirit does have a mode of operation. There's unique things that the Scripture points out to us about how we are to go to bring the gospel to people. Because, friends, believing comes through hearing and hearing from the words of Christ. The Scripture is able to make you wise into salvation. And so when we go, we would be foolish not to use the mode of operation that the Spirit most frequently uses, which is the preaching of the Word. And I'm not making reference to what I'm doing right now. I'm making reference to you carrying the word of God to your workplace and to your neighbors. Because in regard to the spirit granting new life, friends, I, I am convinced that he rarely, if ever, does it apart from the preaching of the word. I'm more prone to the never. The word of God must go out. The gospel must be heard for people to repent and believe. The Holy Spirit has chosen to use the word of God to grant new life to lost sinners who are in need of salvation. And so my prayer for you this morning as we consider the new birth is a couple of things. First, if you be in Christ, that you would celebrate that frequently, that you have been born again, and that you would gladly sing very loudly the praises of Christ because when you were at enmity with him, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when there was nothing in you that would cause him to look at you and say, yes, I like that one, he drew you to himself in a way that is actually salvific that he brought you into a right relationship with him, that he gave you life that you might convert, that you might have repentance and faith and be found to be a son or daughter of the king. Secondly, that if you are not in Christ, I can with joy say to you the same thing that we find here in verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I would reiterate this to you in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is a warning. This is the warning that Jesus gives to Nicodemus. You must be born again to see it, and you will never attain it if you are not born again. And so, my friends, if you are here this morning and you perhaps feel convicted of your sin, I have no problem looking at you and saying you must be born again. Unless this comes, there can be no salvation. There can be no repentance and faith. And the beauty here is Jesus looks at him and says, you must be born again. It is a command that he gives. And my friend, if you have felt the conviction of the Spirit, do not be slow to repentance and faith. 
Come to Jesus. He receives you gladly. He's granted you new birth. He's granted you a regeneration, that which you are incapable of doing, that you may repent and believe in Christ. And I would lastly say that the new birth always leads to conversion. That if there be a new heart placed within you, it will give you a longing to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Be obedient to the commands of Christ because he has given you life and you have grown to love your master, the one who would grant you true and living hope.